So we're going to jump into the middle of, of Romans, um, but I got to share some, um, uh, guys, I got a jury summons, right? <laughs> you know, I got the like jury duty thing and I like tried to figure out honest ways to get out of that. <laughs> and so I sent it in and uh, so now why I say that is because I really think as you walk through the book of Romans, this guy Paul writes it. He writes most of the New Testament. Uh, this incredible character who starts out wanting to destroy Christianity, and now he becomes this huge champion of, of the Christian faith, so much so that he's writing so much of, of God's word and um, starting all these churches in, in the Roman Empire. And he writes this book. This is like not just a lot of his books are to specific congregations dealing with issues that they're dealing with and still sharing a ton of incredible information. But, but, but Romans is unique. It's the book where he sits down and says, I'm going to lay it all out. Here is the Christian faith. And the way that God wires him, he's kind of this uh, analytical, very brilliant guy. Um, to me, it kind of comes across as a jury case. It's kind of like you're in the court, uh, in, in God's court, standing before him, and he's making this case, first of all, against you. And that's where we, we, we begin Romans, saying, okay, we're standing before a holy, good God, and none of us have any excuse before him. And, and, and he walks through the excuses we might throw out or that we've used or that we hear commonly. Well, I just don't believe there's a God. Well, you're standing before God. That doesn't matter. Who cares? That excuse is dumb. <laughs> no, he sums it up with, okay, if you, if you want to reject that there's a God, look at creation. And, and in all of our, you know, brilliant ways that we've tried to come up with arguments of, you know, showing that God, there must be a God, I, I, that's, that's got to be one of the most powerful ones. That we just look at creation and go, how in the, this can't just be a, a, a happy coincidence, there is too much evidence around us that we've all observed to ignore that there's something greater than us, that there's, there's something beyond. There's something that we, we have these things, these, these transcendent things like values and morality and, and things that, that, that are all within what we observe in creation among people. And then we just look at it. And so he just sums it up with, okay, you can't deny God. Look at creation. Um, and then he walks through and he says, well, some of you guys think you're good and you're good enough. And you stand before God and, and he says, no, God is holy. God is greater and more holy and he's just. And there's no way you can stand before him and be declared right, righteous enough to be in a perfect relationship with him. That means we would have to be perfect. And the best of the best of us, there's no way we're going to come close to cutting that. And then he says, well, about, I'm real religious, and all my religious stuff that I do, that makes me right with God. And Paul says, nope, nope, that's not going to do you any good. You guys are just in denial because you think you're good, and that stuff, like, makes up for it, and you, you really don't understand. Well, and, and then we know that people, like, okay, well, the people who admit that they're, they're, they've made mistakes and they come short of God, like, okay, we know, yeah, they already admit it. And so it's like he's walking through this, and the penalty is death, spiritual death and spiritual separation from God. And that's what we're dealing with is in this courtroom case. And then we get a beautiful picture as it's kind of bad news, bad news, bad news. Jesus steps in, 
and we get Romans 5.8. Great verse to kind of remember, to kind of circle, highlight. Uh, if, if, you know, you, you do that or uh, what do you do on your phone nowadays? Copy and paste and post. Post to Facebook. Post to Facebook, 5.8, Romans 5.8. Thankfully, as we're like condemnation, condemnation, guilt, guilt, what are we going to do? Hopelessness. Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And the picture is that we've, while we're still in our sin, while we've done nothing to deserve it, God has stepped in and he has done and he has provided what's necessary to be right. Um, now, now, it doesn't end there. And that's what I think, you know, well, if Romans just ended there, that'd be a beautiful picture. God's people would understand what that looks like because God's people, as, as he's writing and makes a lot of uh, references to a Jewish understanding, although I think he's also writing to, to non-Jewish people, especially being in Rome. But, but he would ha- they would have an understanding that, okay, we have known for thousands of years that there needs to be, that there's a holy God, that we're sinful, and what we need to do is make a sacrifice for our sin. There needs to be a payment because God is just, and the just sacrifice is death and, and life and bloodshed. And so we know that, and that, that's been established. And, and so what has happened for, for the whole time of, of that being introduced to God's people, they would sacrifice animals. And that would be a part of their religious uh, uh, you know, atonement to God and, and part of their approaching him to deal with sin. So they would know that. And Jesus comes in and does something radical and different, but they understand it even in a way maybe we don't, that he comes in and he is the final sacrifice and the complete sacrifice. I mean, it is God himself putting on flesh and saying, I love my creation so much, I'm going to be the sacrifice and just imagine, okay, if animals could, could, you know, cover you for a short amount of time or whatever, God himself putting on human flesh, that, that's enough. That's sufficient. That will take care of the penalty, and it will maintain God's justice. And so that's what God does. That's what Jesus does. And you would think, okay, so here's the understanding. My sins are forgiven. Man, I, you know, I know I've rebelled against a God, and I, a good holy God, and, 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 and now I'm right because of what Jesus has done. And I think Romans could end there, and we'd be like, that's good stuff. Awesome. But it, it doesn't end. Have you guys seen these shows that kind of blow you away? They do like a life transformation thing, and they keep on adding to it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're, you're like blown away. They find someone who's, who's you know, really kind of, um, worthy of, of, you know, people say, hey, this, this family has gone through a lot or they've been great and let's, we want to do something for them and they're struggling, right? And some, some show comes in and they give them a free house and they're like blown away, right? They get in their free house and they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe. But then they add to it and they're like, oh, yeah. And then walk into your free house. It's fully furnished. Oh, wow. Oh, that's incredible. Fully furnished free house. Then go to the garage. Right? Are you guys with me with these shows? You guys are still feeling bad for me because my jury summons, right? Guys, hey, I'm a pastor. Give me a good excuse. Last three days of May, okay? 
Anyone need, you know, you got to have your pastor there at some surgery and everything. See me afterwards. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> um, where was I? Okay. They go to the garage, right? Free cars. Oh, this is crazy. And then all the kids come in. Hey, go check out your bedroom. And then they gather the kids together. And all the kids, all their colleges paid for by the local college. And, you know, and you're like, what? Oh, we, oh, yeah. And you had all this debt. We paid it all. We paid your hospital. And you're like, oh. by the end of the show, you, you know, you're like sweating. Like, oh, yeah, this is crazy. And this is kind of what's happening here in Romans. That it's like, okay, your sins are forgiven. They're paid for. Wow, we don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. And God has done that on our behalf. That is incredible. Don't just wait. You also get the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? What's that all about? God dwelling in you. How does that work? I don't know. That's what Romans will continue to kind of flesh out in the next few chapters that we'll be going through. So the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells in you and works and moves and breathes through you and empowers you and motivates you and leads you. Wow. But that's not it. You also get, and there's all sorts of other things we could talk about, but today what we're going to land on is you're going to get adopted into God's family. You're going to be a child of God. That's incredible. How does it just get better and better? Yes. Um, so, so that's what I thought was such a powerful concept, such a beautiful thing that's described not just once. Paul doesn't just use this once. Here's a good way to illustrate this. But time and time again, we saw some scripture while we were singing. Time and time again, we see in scripture that this is what God does. That he brings us into his family. Um, and so let's look at the dynamic of that and how incredible that is. Uh, in Romans 8, 14 and 15, this is what we're going to look at. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Now, how does, I, I love that just right off the bat. What the Spirit does is he leads us. He, it's not like. Satan who drives you away from God or into what he wants you to do. We see a picture of that even when Jesus, um, or, or when, when the, uh, I'm trying to think, the, the demons are thrown into the uh, uh, group of pigs and they're driven off the cliff. It's kind of a picture of, I see, of, of how, how Satan would, would drive you. But, but God says, no, I, I, I'm, that's not how I operate. I work with you. I lead you. I don't force you into this. And so how does the Spirit lead us? He leads us into repentance. He leads us into, into thinking less about us and making a big deal about Jesus. He leads us into truth. He leads us into love. He leads us into holiness. He leads us into usefulness for his plan and his kingdom and other people. Verse 15 goes on to say, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And I love that. The sonship or the daughtership that comes and is declared upon you when you have faith in Jesus, that's, that's before it starts talking about how the spirit leads you and works in your life. 
because that's established and that's important to know. And that's a huge point that we need to understand in us becoming children of God, that that is established not by anything that we do, but this incredible gracious gift that God gives us. And then a part of us wanting to, to, be, to fully embrace and know this sonship, this daughtership, is being led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Galatians 3.3, 3, if you want to see anywhere where Paul gets really upset, and man, he even, he uses bad language, really. If you, we translate it a little nicer, I think, in English. But he gets so upset about this one concept. Anything, any kind of teaching, anything that would allude to us doing something, putting forth effort to be right with God, whether it's a religious action or morality or whatever, taking away from what Jesus fully accomplished and what he did and not understanding our own inability breaks his heart. Well, he doesn't even sound that sensitive. I shouldn't say breaks his heart, but sets him off. And so you read Galatians and he gets so upset at people who have that understanding because they've heard the gospel. And then they take the gospel and then they try to transform it into a works-based religious system that, that somehow then comes into play after the gospel or something. And so, so Paul, in Galatians 3.3, 3, it's not on the screen, but he says, um, having to do with the Holy Spirit in your life, how foolish can you be? He's not being very nice, and we're just being nice in how we translate that. You stinking fool. Um, After starting your new life in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? So he's talking to people who have accepted Jesus, and they think, yeah, okay, like Jesus gives me a kickstart or something and, and, and helps me a little bit get on the right track, and then it's up to me. And Paul's like, ah, the whole thing is God. Everything. As you are adopted into God's family, he does want you to live for him and be led by the Holy Spirit. But don't turn the Christian faith then into an effort-based Christianity, which so many people do. Understand that the Spirit of God then leads you, motivates you. It's all God. He gets all the credit for what he wants to do in your life and work through your life. And then it goes on to say, now we call him Abba, Father. And that is significant. And this may sound like real familiar. There's pretty familiar passages if you have any kind of church, Bible background. But that is so significant because it's not, I don't know if you've ever seen, I think I watch too much TV. You know, something like a scenario where an adult meets their father for the first time. And, and in most cases, I mean, this, is, this person is is their father biologically, but in no other sense are they their father. And so there's some, you know, we found your father, there's some reuniting, and it might be an emotional thing, but oftentimes you'll just say, you know, you'll see two adults meet each other and say, hello, my name is Ben. Oh, you're my biological father, and then that's usually kind of used with it. And, And that's what, this isn't just a technical thing. That's being declared on those who are adopted into God's family. That this is an intimate, joyful relationship that God wants to have with you. So much so that you can call him dada. You can call him 
what what we see is um, now I'm forgetting. What was it? Abba <laughs> it would be their translation of daddy or dada. That this is an intimate relationship that he's calling us into. And it goes on in verse 16. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. And, and then, wait, okay, whoa. We got, we got forgiveness of our sin. We got the righteousness of Jesus applied to us. We got the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have God adopting us into his family. And this is like, and the kids get free tuition to college. And we're heirs. We're, we're, we're um, his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. And it may sound kind of weird, like he ends on a low note, like, and then you might suffer. But I think that's significant because I just think about, and I've run into many people who, okay, I know this truth, and I've learned God's truth, and I know my identity, and I know where, and I know what he's done, but life stinks now. And I lost my job, and a loved one passed away, or a loved one was sick, or I got sick, or I went through this horrible uh, you know, broken relationship or whatever. And, and he says, now don't for like, here is the truth of what has happened to you. And if you go through suffering in this life, don't doubt this other truth that I've given you because Jesus, the perfect person had to suffer tremendously. And of course that did not take away from who he was or who he was in relationship with with God as as God, so so he ends it with that. But it kind of makes sense because if you if you read Paul, you know he's always thinking, okay, but what are people? What are going to be the skeptical questions after I lay out this incredible, beautiful truth? And so here's some things as we um, what we're actually going to fill out things in your program if you guys like to do that. Um, but at, before we look at what adoption, the things that we get in being adopted with God. Um, Actually, we'll go through this list, then I'll jump back to this. I hope, I'll, I'll remember this. Okay, so number one, here's what we get in adoption. Planned, it's planned in advance. Here, here's part of the adoption of God. Is, is when we see, sometimes we'll see passages that talk about God, he predestined this plan, this idea, this, this, this thing that he was going to do. And we see it in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. And you see this theme reiterated in Scripture. And this is talking about God's plan for people who say yes to Jesus and put their faith in him. And, and the Jewish people had a hard time wrapping their brain around this because it wasn't fair in their sight. Or it took away their, their special position with God. Because the Jewish people were God's uh, chosen people that he revealed himself through. That, that, that he just... It, just said, hey, I'm going to, this is going to be a special people that, that Jesus even comes through that group of people. Amazing, wonderful group of people that has an incredible history. 
And they had a hard time understanding that when Jesus came on the scene and offered this adoption and offered this forgiveness and offered this relationship with God, that it wasn't just for them, that it was for everyone. Thank goodness, right? Or I'd be out of luck, and most of you, I think almost all of you, would be out of luck. And so he planned that it would be for all people. Number two, that it comes at a cost. I, I'm, uh, I'll be a little bit like Paul in Galatians here. I, I get offended when people say, oh, hey, I know, I know what kind of church you are. You guys are like, just, you just preach the Bible. I don't get offended by that part. Um, <laughs> but you, you guys are like that easy grace, easy gospel. You just kind of believe and put faith in Jesus, and that's it. <laughs> you just, you're looking for an easy way out. Like, that's cheap grace. And them are fighting words. <laughs> right? Be, because it, it was the most expensive thing that's ever been paid for. It was paid for by the blood of Jesus, the suffering, the humiliation, his life. It was the greatest sacrifice ever made. I just, my currency didn't like, uh, wasn't taken with God in trying to make myself right. I could do nothing. I couldn't pay. Nothing I do is worth diddly squat to make myself right with God. But the greatest payment ever was paid through Jesus and so it comes at a great cost, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, but sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. There's that direct phrase that we see again, adopted as his very own children. But the, the cost that he purchased and he bought our freedom. Number three, um, it removes me from bad situations. Psalms 41 through 3 just gives a picture of what it's like to know and have an, uh, be in relationship and know God's forgiveness. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. There's a, I talk to a lot of people about, you know, just sharing, uh, this may sound kind of churchy or religious, like their testimony, but just their story of what God has done in their life. And, 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 and I think often we try to overcomplicate it. It's, it's a nervous thing as people might get up here and they're like, Ben, I may sound like you and be like, uh, I can get words out sometimes. Um, but it can be a nervous thing. And, and, and the simplest way I've been told to share your story of what God's done in your life is simply before Jesus, here, here's who I was. And, and after Jesus in my life, here's what he's done, uh, for me, but he's taken me out of, uh, a, a situation that was just about me, a, a situation where I didn't know where I stood before God. Maybe I was in some blind arrogance and pride or religious pride thinking I'd be okay with God. But, but ultimately, there wasn't the peace and assurance that God's given me. Um, there isn't the, the assurance of the love and acceptance that God has for me. All those things. Number four, he changes my identity. And so that's significant. I worked with teenagers for like 12 years. 
And one of my greatest goals working with teenagers in churches was helping them understand their identity in Christ. That, that man, teenagers especially, love you guys. Sometimes. Um, hey, I'm not God. Um, no. Um, you know, they get so wrapped up in their, uh, their worth and their self-esteem being tied up with what other people think about them, you know, and how other people view them or how the culture, the, the picture that the culture portrays of what, what is, you know, what is praiseworthy, what is good, what is popular, what is whatever. And so um, to, to have kids, I understand their identity in, identity in Christ, man, I see a night and day shift often when I would work with teenagers uh, and, and, and see them embrace that and, not, and, and put aside all the junk that is somehow hyper-focused uh, on when it comes to teenage years. But we deal with it too as adults, and we forget our identity in Christ. It changes, Colossians 1 through 3. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Um, for, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And so, you know, I know I say it a lot, but we do a lot of baptisms here. We see a lot of adults get baptized, and when we do that in here, it's a picture. It's a symbol, and it's a picture reminding us and proclaiming to people who don't understand that your old life, your sinful life, your rebellion, rebellious life against God is dead and buried. And, and, and you have a new life. There's such a dramatic finality to what that means. Now, we may drift back and try to act like our old life, but that's just our new life trying to act like our old life. That that is a, a thing that, that cannot, is irrevo- irrevocable. I want to say irrevocable. Irre- moving on. Irreversible and irrevocable, but it's both. Um, but our identity, our entire identity has changed. And it's not something we, we boast about. We boast that God has done it for us. And because we haven't contributed, we receive this incredible grace that we don't deserve. Um, it, it, here's the picture. As we talk about Jesus' righteousness is another one of those. You got a new cars too. His righteousness given to us. Now, I, I can just look. I can survey the crowd and tell that you guys are big clubbers, Right? And you were probably clubbing last night. Some of you guys are kind of tired. And you guys, some of you guys are giving me weird looks. I don't know. I'm trying to wake you up here. Okay. So, uh, you know, some real elite clubs with VIPs only, there is a list. You know, you go to L.A. or something, and it's like, hey, if you're not like an A-list uh, Hollywood person, you know, you don't get into the club or whatever, here's my list. And you and I try to walk in there, and they'd be like, yeah. Bounce, right? Because that's the bouncer, right? I'm cool. Um, so that's what heaven's like. Here's a picture of heaven. That, that God is the bouncer of heaven. <laughs> and he stands there, and, and, and at the end of this life, we stand before him. And when he says, should I let you in, you know how many names are on the list of people who can be let in? One. There's one. Now, stick with my illustration. I know we could talk about the Lamb's Book of Life or something, but just stick with my illustration because it goes with this. The one name is Jesus. And, and, and so what happens is 
if you've said yes to Jesus, you've put your trust and faith in him to make you right with God and nothing else, you stand before God and Jesus' worthiness, righteousness is credited to you as this incredible gift. And so the name that comes up when you come in, if you've done that, is Jesus. So it's like, oh, okay, Jesus. Come oh, hey, Jesus. Yeah, come, oh, Jesus. Yeah, man, we got a lot of Jesus. Okay, Jesus. Yeah, that's what he sees. He sees Jesus, his son, his perfection, his righteousness credited to us. And that's, that's the picture that we get um, of our identity changed. Number five, our debts are removed. And I love that we talk about adoption and, and in the Roman world, if there was any debt, because debt could be tied to a family and all sorts of things, if there's any debt attached to a child being adopted, legally the father had to pay that debt or it had to be, the, it had to be wiped away. The child could not go into an adoption and be adopted into a family without that debt being wiped away. Isaiah 53 talks about this beautiful picture um, of that debt being paid. Uh, some eight, nine hundred years before Jesus goes to the cross, we get this, this almost what seems like an eyewitness account of the cross. It says, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Now, working with teenagers for 12 years and being all consumed with, you know, how they look, I'd be like, Jesus, he wasn't a great-looking guy. Some people get mad. What? He looks like Fabio in all the pictures I see. So we don't have any pictures of Jesus. Those are, you know, made up. He wasn't white. Um, But isn't that interesting? The values of God are so different from the values of the world. That when God comes in human flesh, he chooses to be very average, very ordinary in his appearance. Because that's not the most valuable thing, although so many people make that such a valuable thing. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with, with deepest grief. He turned, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet he was, he Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of of us all. Our debts are paid not by anything we have done, but by what Jesus has done on the cross. Number six, he gives me new expectations. Second Corinthians 5.17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. If you are told you have a brand new life, the life ahead of you is different from what you were focused on in your old life, that you have completely new expectations that you have a different view of what life is all about, about what eternity is, about really focusing on eternal things and understanding how temporary and short this life is. Number seven, he grants me into an inheritance. Romans eight seventeen, we read that. 
that we are heirs. And it's just one of those, you know, and we bought your mom a new house. Number eight, I am loved by a new father. First John 3, 1. See how very much our father loves us. I love First John and how, how uh, I don't know, dramatic and powerfully it's put God's love to us. See how very much our father loves us. For he calls us his children. Again, we see that theme. And that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. You know, we see one, one story comes to mind that Jesus tells. One of his most powerful parables is, is the prodigal son. And I've run to a lot of people who have no idea what the word prodigal means. They think it's like a, it must be, mean rebellious or returning or something like that. Prodigal means lavishly ridiculous. That's kind of my own interpretation, but it's lavishly spending. Like in, in, a, in a way that doesn't make sense. That is, that is out of what should happen. And that's what it's described as the rebellious son you know, goes away, takes his inheritance early, disrespects the father, blows all the money, lives for himself, and then comes to his senses, right? And what, what, what's the father's reaction? He opens his arms and embraces him. He doesn't say, well, okay, now you got to work this off. Now you gotta... Nope. He openly just embraces him, and then he prodigals him. He lavishly, he kills the fatted calf. He throws a celebration. He, he, he lavishes incredible things on him that he, he doesn't deserve, and that's what God's done for us. Now, I talked about the courtroom as we wrap up this morning. I want you to understand what these first century people would, would think about what's taking place here. They knew well death, but they, were the, they, they instituted a lot of death themselves in this culture. It was a Hellenistic view that they adopted, the Roman culture adopted from the Greeks. And, and this Hellenistic view is a very humanist view. That the greatest thing to celebrate, the most wonderful thing that we can kind of focus on is, this may sound weird, the male uh, specimen. And the, the unflawed, as unflawed as we could find male specimen is kind of the greatest thing we can celebrate. That was this weird view that Jesus grew up in this culture. And so they had a practice of, of that being such high value in that culture that they would very often just have their daughters killed. If, if you had a daughter, you're like, eh, let's just, let's throw her away. If you had a son who, who even at birth seemed to have any kind of significant imperfections, even some doctors, as we read how they played this out in this culture, would say if they didn't cry loud enough when they were born, that might be an indication that they're unhealthy. So expose them. What did that mean? Put them out and be exposed to the elements. So they had this practice of exposing children, of not children, little tiny babies, as I see uh, J.D. and Rachel's beautiful little infant back there. They would take a small little infant and they would put him out on the trash heap. Oh, we got another beautiful baby back here. Yay, I love babies. And, and can you imagine? We can't even imagine. And I think so many people in our culture who even reject the Christian faith and reject Christianity, they have no idea how much Christianity has influenced our thinking throughout, you know, 
and and to the fact that this what I'm going to describe here even have a little bit is just horrific sounding that they would they they thought well we don't want to murder that's up to the gods we don't want to take on that responsibility so we're going to take our our oh we had a girl boo we're going to take her to the trash dump outside of the city and just set her there and then you know hey maybe she'll survive of course not 2 3 year old baby day year old baby is not going to survive wild animals and starvation and whatever. Um, if you were rich, the way that they did this and somehow they, they justified this is they thought it was, it was nice and convenient. Maybe you didn't have to go out to the dump. You just throw your baby in a well. And archaeologists have found wells with just tons of babies in them in the middle, in the Roman Empire. This was how they viewed, I know, I would cry too. This is how they viewed human life. This is what they elevated the most. And, and this is the picture of the ultimate death and, and tragedy that, that is experienced in this culture. And it's kind of the picture of where we find ourselves, uh, as Paul lays it out in the beginning. Helpless, broken, only headed for death, sitting on a hill, with nothing, no hope. And the picture that we get is that Jesus comes along and goes up on a hill and does what's necessary to adopt us into his family. And, uh, you know, that's even carried on. Where do orphanages come from? Christians invented them because they had God so radically changed the way they thought. They saw human life as sacred, and they understood that Jesus died for everyone and that God created everyone in, in his image. And so they had a practice of going out to the city dump or going out wherever they, you know, would, would tend to leave these babies and they just collect them. And they started putting them up. And that's how orphanages were invented through, through Christians having this different idea. But what we get a picture of is this courtroom of us being sentenced to that kind of death and then the court proceedings changing to an adoption. As a pastor, sometimes I got to go to hospitals and, you know, uh, visit people. And there's one area of the hospital that's a little more joyful. <laughs> I'd say a lot more joyful. It's weird. It's kind of a weird contrast. It feels weird because most of the hospital it's, 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 can be difficult, can be hard. But you go into the maternity ward, <laughs> and it's usually just full of joy and life and excitement. And people want to go there, and they want to go to the hospital. And there's a similar situation, I think, is like in the, in the courtrooms. I'll tell you more in a couple weeks. Um, <laughs> where it's not a real pleasant place, usually, for people, you know, paying fines and, you know, defending themselves or whatever. But there's one area of a courtroom that's really joyful. And it's an adoption, when an adoption's taking place. And I was surprised to find out, I think it's such a beautiful concept, and God uses it so often to picture what he does to us. What is said, and, and this is, would be common in the Roman world, that when you were adopted, it's not any secondary status in a family. It is full-on sonship or daughtership. And so we even see it today. It's almost like a marriage ceremony. Watch this short clip to get a picture of it. Okay, so I have some very important questions. We're going to go with moms first. 
Lillian Christine Crispin, do you take Oliver Cyrus Crispin to be your son? Yes. To love him, honor him, and nurture him as if he were your biological son? Yes. To assume all legal responsibilities as if he were your biological son? Yes. Do you take accept this obligation freely and voluntarily? Yes. David Brainerd Crispin, do you take Oliver Cyrus Crispin to be your son? Yes. To love him, honor him, and nurture him as if he were your biological son? Yes. To assume all legal responsibilities as if he were your biological son? Yes. Do you accept this obligation freely and voluntarily? Yes. All right, everybody hold on to each other. <laughs> by the power vested in me by the state of California for the county of Riverside and Superior Court, I now pronounce David Brainerd Christman and Lillian Christine Christman as the father and mother to Oliver Cyrus Christman. Congratulations, everybody. Give a round. As we close this morning, just I want you to really get this picture. Karis and Jackson, come here. They're going to be my illustration up here to close. Because I want you to walk away with a picture of understanding how much God loves us. All right. This is my sweet, sweet Karis. This is Jackson. <laughs> Jackson's rocking his Helton Brewery hat. Good job. No, we don't own a brewery. But we ran into someone we're distantly related to. That does. All right. So um, now here's the picture. And, and you guys would know this. And this is so limited because I am so imperfect as a father. And I mess up all the time, right? <laughs> Too many times to count. All right. Thanks. And I have to go to them and I have to ask forgiveness. So we're talking about a perfectly perfect heavenly father. Who, who doesn't have those kind of flaws. And, and some of us, it's hard to relate. Maybe we didn't have uh, a healthy fatherhood picture in our life, and we read what the Bible says about him being our father, and we're like, eh. But this is a perfect heavenly father. So in my er- imperfection, like this little girl right here, Karis, oh, I could tell you so many stories. I love her so deeply that there is nothing she could do to get me to love her any less. So, you know, many of you can understand that. There is nothing she could do. No kind of rebellion. No kind of, you know, not following some rules or something. There's nothing. And she doesn't contribute much to to the home. Like, she's just <laughs> expensive. Uh, she does cook dinner. That's right. That's right. This, this works ba- better with little babies. Like, bring the little baby up. All right? Jackson, there's nothing he could do to get my to have my love any less for him. And both of these two, there's nothing they could do for me to love them more. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine loving them more. It's not based on the things that they've done. It's because they are my children. And and if someone were to ask me like why do you love your kids? I'd just laugh. Cuz they're my kids. They're mine. And so that's the picture that God is giving us. If you're in Christ, he's, he's your father, and you're his kids. And there's nothing you can do to be separated from the love that he has for you. And, and um, so I hope that's a picture, and I want my kids to know that as well. <laughs>